The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the contest? Go ahead. Make my day. Welcome to this latest edition of Black Hole Cinema with your genial host, Tony Black, who is riding on the crest of a wave of freedom as I've just broken up for my two-week Easter break slash vacation, if you're in the States listening, as I work in a school and we get two weeks off for the Easter period, at which point I have been asked by several people, what are you going to do then, Tony, over the uh, Easter break? And my response has been, nothing. And the response to that has been, well, oh, okay, quite sad-faced people. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute, no, this isn't a bad thing at all. I've been looking forward to doing nothing for several months of hard work. So the nothing is going to entail quite a lot of film watching and reviewing. And I've managed to get a fair bit done over these last few months anyway, as you well know if you've been listening to this podcast, but this is going to give me a chance to blast through plenty more, which I will obviously share with you. On this edition, we are going to have two reviews of brand new films in the cinema. We'll be looking at The Quiet Ones and Noah. And the guest spot is back. This week it will be my uh, friend from Italy, uh, Mr. Andrew Corvaro, who will be uh, discussing his favourite film, and I won't spoil the surprise of what that will be, but that's coming up very soon. So, I'll start off with the feature that I introduced last week, which was me talking through the movies that I've watched over the course of the last seven days, and briefly dissecting whether or not I thought they were any good. And so let's roll it back and go back to the 6th of April, which was last Sunday, just uh, around the time I was recording the last podcast. And last Sunday I watched four films. I managed to squeeze quite a bit in last Sunday from the afternoon onwards. I started with The Dirty Dozen, which had been on my to-watch list for goodness knows how long. Probably ever since I started watching films, even. And it had been top of my Sky Box, Sky Plus Box for, well, since last summer, actually. And I've just never blocked the right time to watch it. I... Hold this up partly to the idea that there has to be a certain time when you watch certain films. And I've discussed this before, and I dare say I'll discuss it again. But The Dirty Dozen really feels like a Sunday afternoon film to me. So that's when I decided to watch it. And I was surprised, actually, at The Dirty Dozen. I was surprised how little I got from it. It's one of those films that I'd always wanted to see, I've heard much about, has inspired many different things, but it just was wanting for me. It was firmly a three-star film. Which surprised me, because I expected it to be one of those classic war adventure films. But it's not, really. It's surprisingly leaden in many places. It plods a bit. There's, there's some, some good characters in there, and there's some, some great ideas. But it just takes a long time, not going very far. And it builds to a really good climactic sequence when the Dirty Dozen storm the, the Nazi castle. But it was just, it was just underwhelming. And I, I actually said at the time, I think... If there is any film out there that, that you could get away with remaking these days, any, any you know classic, in inverted commas, film you could get away with remaking, then it's The Dirty Dozen. And I think, I genuinely think the right filmmaker could do The Dirty Dozen better. And it even led to some discussion on Letterboxd talking a little bit about potential uh, casting for <laughs> a new Dirty Dozen. And uh, a few of the names that I threw out there for certain roles were Liam Neeson, Josh Brolin, Ryan Gosling, and Tommy Lee Jones. And I think immediately, I know I was thinking, wow, <laughs> that'd be a hell of a cast. So The Dirty Dozen, I hope someone remakes it, to be honest, because the original doesn't do much for me. After that, I then watched Despicable Me, which obviously has done very well as a big uh, Pixar-inspired animated film, importantly not a Pixar film, this was made by uh, Universal, and a, a, uh, an amalgamated French studio, who, you know, animation-wise, it's, it's very nice, it looks very good, you can tell the inspiration from Pixar, 
but in terms of the actual content, it was a mixed bag for me, just despicable me. For a start, I don't really understand why Steve Carell plays the Gru, the supervillain involved. I don't really know why he's putting on a Russian accent and playing that part. It, it, it seems confusing to me. And the whole thing just doesn't really seem to know how to pitch its comedy quite right. It's not quite that, it's not really funny enough to be a comedy, it's not really exciting enough to, enough to be an animated adventure. It's just got the look of Pixar, but it doesn't have the magic of Pixar, and I think that's quite telling, really. It'll be interesting when I finally watch the sequel to see whether or not that's any better, although I suspect it may not be. So that was a bit of a disappointment, too, which surprised me, because I did expect that to be better, given the pedigree of, of, of the kind of things it's doing. Then, thankfully, my day was made when I watched Castaway with Tom Hanks. Now, it's been said before by several people that have noticed that I'm not the biggest Tom Hanks fan. I don't actively dislike Tom Hanks. I've never actively disliked Tom Hanks. He's just never really done much for me as an actor. I've just, I've, I've never fallen under his thrall. I've enjoyed things he's been in, but he's never just blew me away. This was the first film, I think, that I watched with Tom Hanks, genuinely, where I just loved him, and I, th- I, th- I thought he was fantastic. Castaway, if it wasn't for Back to the Future, might actually be Robert, Robert Zemeckis's best film I, I'm you know it was, it was wonderful that's actually far far better than I expected it to be and you can see why the TV show Lost actually was inspired a little bit by Castaway because I later learned that the uh, the head of ABC later said well can we have a desert island show uh, like Castaway and originally it was going to be similar but it's such a touching movie such a really touching film powerfully done Take some risks, the fact it has no score, the fact it focuses just on Tom Hanks for a very long time in the film, and it just feels like a really complete package. I was moved and, you know, completely hooked in by that one. So Castaway is fantastic, and I'm disappointed I never got to see it sooner. Finally, I finished the day with a real disappointment, sadly, when I watched The Omen. Not the original 1976 film, which, of course, is a horror classic and is excellent. I watched the remake by... The hack that is John Moore, which unfortunately, clearly John Moore has been in, talking to Gus Van Sant. When Gus Van Sant did that remake of, of Psycho, shot by shot remake in 1998 of Psycho, which was just an absolutely pointless endeavour from start to finish. He's done pretty much the same with The Omen. He's taken the David Seltzer's original script and he's remade The Omen using the same locations and very much the same kind of shots, the same characters the same words, and without any of the original sense of charm or excitement or terror or anything that the original, that that cold feeling that Richard Donner brought to the first Omen is not there. It's Hollywood gloss that wastes some really good actors, the late Pete Postlethwaite, people like Lee Schreiber, Julia Stiles. They're actually perfectly decent actors in their own right, and it's just an absolutely pointless endeavour completely just to cash in on the date it was released which was the 6th of the 6th 2006 although interesting fact i've been playing around recently with this uh, cool new website called flick chart where you basically organizes all your movies into a um, into a list a chronological list of all the films you've rated against each other um, to get your top you know 20 or whatever and, and beyond and uh, in rating the omen quite creepily when i when it when it was ultimately auto rated it came out as 666, which, which, is, which was a little bit spooky when it actually... And that was completely randomised. That was very strange. Um, that was probably the most enjoyable experience I've had involving that film. So avoid The Omen, for goodness sake, the remake. Watch the original if you haven't. On Monday the 7th, I watched two films. I watched Cruel Intentions to start off with, which, uh, having seen... Long ago, Dangerous Liaisons in the 1980s uh, is, is effectively a, a teen remake of, of that based on the 18th century um, novel uh, from fr- French literature. And it's, it's one of those films that has gone down well in pop culture and is remembered in pop culture principally for the fact that Sarah Michelle Gellar plays a slut who gets off with Selma Blair. That's, if, anyone's, if you say to anyone, cruel intentions, they will immediately go, oh, the kiss. And frankly, that kiss isn't really all that looking, you know, it's, it's different. That, this came out when, when I was a horny teenager, so I understand the appeal then. But nowadays, it almost feels quite tame, actually. And it's just lacking that eroticism. The whole thing doesn't have any kind of eroticism at all. It's just a bunch of whiny little bastards, little rich bastards, trying to up, up, one-up each other. And it, it just... It's just a really, really grating, irritating film, ca- cashing in on the whole idea that Sarah Michelle Gellar, who unfortunately 
isn't the greatest actress in the world, despite how well she did on Buffy. Just trying to vamp it up without success. Just a really kind of uh, quite dull teen, you know, film. Even though it does have, you know, intentions of being something a bit different and a bit deeper, it just isn't. It, it's, it's not as good as I remembered. Then I was vindicated by watching Three Kings later in the night. I forgot how, how good Three Kings was, actually. I remember watching Three Kings a long time ago. Uh, the, the satirical war movie set in Iraq um, by David O. Russell. And it surprised me, actually, how well done Three Kings is. It's really quite visceral. It's, uh, it, it was a really famously difficult shoot in which George Clooney and, um, and David O. Russell did not get on one bit. And they came to, came to fisticuffs at one point. And Russell, by the sound of it, was an egomaniac. But you... The, the, the difficulty of, of shooting that film kind of comes across in the ultimate movie itself. I and mean, it, it really does, you know, strike a chord there. Um, it's got some fantastic performances. It's well shot. It's, it's shot with a special kind of film that grains up the image to make it look like it's almost like a war documentary. Just a really, really good film. And, and something that is, has something quite profound to say as well underneath. The following day, on the 8th, on Tuesday the 8th, I watched two films again. Started off with Meet the Parents, which again is one of those films that seeped into pop culture and remains in pop culture through various different moments, principally two things. The fact that Ben Stiller's character is called Gaylord Fokker, um, <laughs> which remains a funny joke, even though it's very base. And the other thing, of course, is Robert De Niro's um, lie detector test that he gives Ben Stiller in this whole thing of, of, of simple premise of a man being taken home to his prospective future wife's in-laws, and one turns out, De Niro obviously turns out to be a former CIA agent who puts him through the mill. And it, it's, it, it's, it's a fun film, you know, you remember why, it's, it's a very, quite a light farce, it's got, it's got quite a lot of heart to it. It's not, it's not as biting as I remember actually, Meet the Parents, it's actually a, quite, a lot softer than I, than I remember it being, but it's, it's a sweet film, and... Interestingly enough, De Niro was the one who came up with the idea for that lie detector test. It wasn't in the original script, and he was the one who decided that it might be a good idea, and it, as it turns out, it's one of the most famous parts of the film. So, I enjoyed Meet the Parents still, and it's, it's not the greatest comedy in the world, it's not a comedy classic, but it's, it, it deserves to be fairly well remembered. Beyond that, I watched something that I hadn't seen before, and I'd heard much about. It was the 1965 version of John le Carrier's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which stars Richard Burton as a um, seemingly turncoat uh, British section intelligence section chief in, in Berlin who effectively goes undercover in order to smoke out a, um, an, a former Nazi and it's it's a really sort of kitchen sink movie in terms of uh, being very very down and down and, and gritty without without being edgy you know it's got that kind of old school class to it but it's black and white it's setting set mainly in rooms it's got Richard Burton and typically in a very Richard Burton-esque intense powerful performance playing a character who finds himself in this really murky world and it builds the tension really quite, quite well it's got a fantastic script really well acted and it just has the most bleak of endings but one of those endings that really fits and really leaves you thinking and it's, it's, it's the kind of film that people wouldn't rush to watch and it's it's not, it's not a fast-moving film at all. It doesn't have any kind of action spectacle. In fact, it's like the anti-James Bond. You know, Le Carrier's books are like the anti-Fleming in that they are much more about probably the, the grim reality of Cold War espionage. But it is quite a, quite a, a quietly thrilling movie that I thoroughly recommend. Going from quietly thrilling to outwardly thrilling, there was a couple of days break in which a couple of the movies that I'm reviewing mainly were watched. But the, I've had a busy few days. But I finally yesterday got round to sit down with my girlfriend and watch The Raid Redemption. In advance of The Raid 2 coming out this week, which I intend to go and see very soon. And you will get a future re review of it, I dare say. And The Raid was one of those films that people have been telling me to watch for a good couple of years now. And I just never got round to it. And boy, I wish I had sooner. Because as you probably know if you've watched The Raid, it is one of the most bombastic, visceral, balletic, frenetic quite stunning action films of recent years and it's hard to really describe the raid you have to watch it for yourself it's a bit like when they said you know you you can't we can't tell you what the matrix is you have to see it for yourself you we, we i can't describe the raid you have to watch the raid for yourself because it's truly quite brilliant in places it's got some incredible action sequences of the like i've never i've not seen before 
It's got it's made by a Welsh director based in Indonesia, so it's all in Indonesian. It takes a cue from movies such as Die Hard, the the, the recent adaptation of Dread, as it turns out, took a cue from this, not the other way around, which a friend of mine um, corrected me on recently. And it's just really, really good. It's it, it's it's so it hits you between the eyes. It doesn't let you go, and it's got some bone crunching scenes of death with this underlayer of, of slight comedy it, it's just fabulous and it's one of those films that if you get a beer in one hand and a pizza in the other and you sit down and you just blast up the speakers you're gonna have a hell of a good time so i thoroughly thoroughly recommend the raid a cracking way to end my home viewing experience of the week in which case let's move on to the nitty-gritty let's get down to the big reviews of this week all right let's kick things off with a little feature that has snuck its way into uk cinemas it's the quiet ones. What is the supernatural? What if you could prove that the supernatural was merely a manifestation of what already exists in the mind? If we can cure one patient, we cure all mankind. What story are you looking for? Are you a believer? I suppose I don't know what I believe in. I hope you don't scare easily. Welcome to the experiment. The Quiet Ones, then, is a new chiller from Hammer Films. Now, Hammer, obviously, as many people will know, is the uh, British film uh, company who historically have made some of the most famous you know, horror films, British horror films of all time, you know, all the Christopher Lee Dracula films and... Um, Frankenstein's and all, all kinds of different uh, features over the years and they've made, they used to make a lot of chillers as well back in the day and most recently after years of, of not functioning they came back with The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe which was obviously quite the success based on the, the stage play which, which I would love to see one day and I, I remember a friend telling me how, how terrifying the stage play was of The Woman in Black and I, I've seen part of the film and it was quite creepy but so Hammer have taken uh, a film and done a big success with it already. So it was inevitable they were going to do more. And The Quiet Ones is, interestingly enough, and this is something I've not come across before, it's written by three writers, but inspired by a screenplay written by someone else. Now, I've never seen inspired by a screenplay. And once I saw that, that immediately gave me pause because I started to think, well, why didn't they use that screenplay that they, it was inspired from? And immediately that set a few alarm bells ringing in my head. Alarm bells that to an extent were justified because The Quiet Ones is one of those films that I think kind of believes it's a bit better than it is and would like to trick you into believing that it's a bit better than it is. Because one of the things that it's doing is it's touching on some quite interesting subject matter with out really going into the depth it needs to and unfortunately coming off, coming off quite often for what it really is. It basically is designed to make you jump. You know, it has pretensions of being much more about the morality of, of science versus faith and experimentation and having taken a very almost like fringe in, in the 1970s approach to um, paranormal investigation. But at the end of the day, it's just trying to make you jump out your seat. Because every five minutes without fail, the quiet ones will try and make you jump. It will. It's either someone <laughs> slamming a window like that, you know, it's like, oh, you know or, or somebody uh, appearing at a window, or a door slams, or they, they uh, uh, you turn the camera and there's someone staring at the camera. And it's every five minutes. To the point now that, and this is where, much as I, I think the director, um, John... Pogue has actually done some decent work on this. He's, he proves he's not a great director because he unfortunately falls into all the cliches now that you see with horror films in that you, if you've seen enough of them and you've seen enough of these films that make you jump, you will know kind of where a jump is going to happen most of the time. And you'll be able to sort of prepare yourself and predetermine for it. There's something that in a lot of these gen fairly generic horror and chiller films that happens is that before a jump is about to happen. One of the things to look out for is that the music will quieten for a start. It will go a bit quieter. And it will hold probably the focus on a character who's just spoken or 
it will hold focus on, on, on an area that it's looking at and it will try and trick you into believing nothing's going to happen and it will linger and then suddenly <coughs> like that will happen ah! and, it will, and the camera will shake and it will all go you know. and it's that trickery that I can see through now and I know when it's coming there was one there was only one truly effective moment that made me jump and it came right at the very end of the film <laughs> and that was the one moment that actually made me jump a little bit. It didn't make me leap out of my seat or scream, but it did make me jolt because I thought, oh, okay, that was good. That didn't, I didn't quite expect that to happen and it was, it was well executed. But before that, through the whole film, I wasn't jumping. I was mildly going, mm, when it happened, I was like, mm, okay, not surprised at that and it's not really giving the effect it was which used to just make people leap out of the seat. And it doesn't really have any depth beyond that as such. It's a shame because it does have an interesting story. You know, it's set in the 1970s, so it's period. It involves this Oxford University team led by Jared Harris, uh, who's playing a professor who is basically trying to, he's talking about the supernatural, but he's trying to prove that the supernatural, as we see it, and certainly in terms of possession, by, by demons and by the devil is a manifestation of negative energy within the human mind. So he's a he's a man who kind of believes that there's some weird stuff going on, but he's, he believes it through the realm of science and he wants to prove it through the realm of science. And inevitably, Jared Harris and Jared Harris has this has this very you know louche delivery like his father, and his he's great. I mean, it, it, if it wasn't for Jared Harris, this film would have been really really quite poor. He, he's the only person in this because he's one of those actors and this is getting more apparent as he gets older and he starts to edge more towards his father's age when Richard Harris, his, his, his dad, who's sadly long gone, was doing these films. He's edging more towards that age now where he can just come on and completely own a film as this kind of perhaps slightly darkly charming guy. I mean, he did it with Sherlock Holmes too. He has playing Moriarty. He did it on Fringe, funnily enough, which is, you know, where he, where he played one of the master villains for several episodes in a couple of seasons. And it was always better when Jared Harris was in it, you know, and it was just like, he's, he's really compelling. He brings it such gravitas in, in a way that you don't get with many actors these days. And he, frankly, he's better than anything in this film because the script is average. It's, it's quite, uh, quite poor at times. And it, it, doesn't get under the character skin it's quite obvious and it's trying to make something a bit more profound than it is and when it really should just cut loose a bit more and enjoy the concept perhaps a bit more and Harris is great for most of it but then he he only loses his way at the end because the script and the character loses its way based on a revelation that I didn't buy and I felt was was a twist too far in order to make him more of a perhaps humanise a character that was going increasingly more obsessive and more interesting because he was getting more darker as the story went on. Because he is a character, and his character is, even though he's not technically the, the character we see this through, he's the character who's the most, the, the central character, because he's the one that, that Poe manages to do the prism of, of exploring the whole morality idea behind this. Because the story effectively is this girl who might be possessed, in inverted commas, who this professor takes in and she's been fostered and all this and he's trying to prove through her these theories and he's willing to go to quite strong lengths to do it and he brings in a team around him of these these two university students who are in his thrall and their cameraman played by Sam Claflin who's this you know everyman young everyman who comes into the story he doesn't know what's been going on we, we see it through his lens but quite literally both through his side you know lens as a person and through his camera lens and it's exploring those ideas about the morality of whether or not what he, what this guy's doing is right, you know, because he's pushing this girl to the brink. Is she really possessed? Is she, is she fucking with everyone? Is she, is, you know, is she messing with people's heads? There's that, that dominates a lot of the first half of the film. Uh, and then, and along the way, it's got a very sort of, uh, the, the two other actors playing the, the two other parts that are very, you know, just annoying characters really. And, uh, and too much too too long is spent on them, and there's this whole few like almost like almost soap opera kind of subplots going on slightly, which luckily Pogue manages to keep in very much in the background. Didn't do that much with, thankfully. But it's a film ultimately. It doesn't really know what it wants to be. Tonally, it's got the same. It's got the, that foreboding element and the slight ominous element to it, which keeps it on the rails really. But 
I think Poe wants this to be a found footage film as well as a spine-tingling hammer chiller that evokes the 1970s kind of movies because literally sometimes in scenes, in the same scene, he will cut between Sam Claflin's camera and his camera. And it, it's quite jarring because at one point you're seeing it through almost like a found footage prison and then it goes back to the, the more, you know, standard, you know, typical camera work. And it doesn't fully work. He should have stuck to one or the other. I actually think this film would have been better if it had solely been through the lens of the cameraman. It would have been far more radically interesting. It would have probably edged it into fully into found footage and taken away the chiller aspect. But it would have been perhaps a more effective scare film and a bit more down low and, and gritty than it actually was because it, it felt it felt very you know my attention wandered quite often with this there were, there were moments where I was sitting there and I, I would I would my mind would start wondering and I'd come back to a scene and go oh okay it's still going on okay so it goes around the houses and it's just it, like I say if it wasn't for Jared Harris I'd have been very bored very often because it's not really that thrilling it's not really that scary the main reasons to watch this one is because it's touching on some really interesting ideas and it doesn't quite go the way you think it's going to go in terms of of the reasons behind everything. You know, it's not quite as simple as a possession story, a standard Hollywood possessed by the devil story. So for that alone, some of the ideas in this, it deserves looking at. And as I say, for Jared Harris's performance, it deserves looking at. But as a film itself, the whole components don't quite gel. And the, and the crucial thing is it's not scary. It's not scary. It's mildly jumpy. It's the kind of thing that if people, a lot of people who haven't seen horror or much horror will be jumping out their, out their skin. But I've seen too much horror and I kind of know how these things work in terms of, like I said, explained about the jumps and about the sequences of, of terror and there aren't really any. So it's not a great... But then again, it's not too bad either. There is definitely worse films you could check out in this genre. And it does have a certain retro appeal to it. And it does have a couple of good moments and some, some decently executed ideas. It's just not really that effective as a spine chiller. everybody to uh, this next segment of Black Hole Cinema in which I get on a friend and they talk about their favourite movie. Simple as that. And my friend today is all the way from Italy. It's Mr. Andrew Corvero. Good evening ladies and gentlemen and vibrations the reform. <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming on Andrew. Um, do you want to tell us what your movie is that you're going to talk about today? My most time favorite movie is Riders of the Lost Ark. Riders of the Lost Ark. A, a wonderful, wonderful choice, if I may say so. Well, it's always been my favorite movie, ever since it was a kid, a little kid. I think the first time I watched it, it was like, um, when did it come out? It came out in the 80s. 19, right? 1981, I believe. 1981. Yeah. 1981. So I was five. I was five because I, I was I'm, I'm born in 1986. So I was maybe it's the first real movie I remember because I, re I remember bits and pieces of other movies, but the first one I remember from start to finish is *Brightest Brightest of the Old Star*. Yeah. And as to as why I, I love it, well, when I was little, I just love it because it had everything I wanted, basically adventures and fights and archaeology. I was really big in archaeology when I was a kid. But now as an adult, I love it because to me, it's cinematic perfection. Mm. From the beginning, you have the first scene, which is one probably the best introduction to a character ever. Yeah. Because, yes, because there's everything you want. Indy, his character, you know, his goals, you know, his arch enemy, you know, yeah. what he's going to do in, in every situation, you know, what he strives for, you know, what 
drives him, and all of that with minimal dialogue. Yeah. Because when you think about that, there's no, no, there's no need to spell things out. You just see it on yeah. screen. Yeah. So they say sh that the movie movies should follow the you know the mantra of show don't tell. To me, the first scene of Riders it's quintessential show don't tell. Yeah. Everything is shown to you. Yeah. You're immersed in the movie. You experience it. And so you know everything. You don't need to, to listen to books, some boring backstory. <laughs> I think that, that nowadays, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of, of excellent movies these days. I don't want to diss modern movies, but I think that the trend that I've noticed is that there's a lot of backstory going on. Mm -hmm. Even Batman Begins, I love that movie, but there's also that story in it. That's, yeah, I, I, I want to, I, I think that as a, as, a, as a movie goer, as someone who pays to see a story, I, I just want to see the story, the story first. Yeah. Also, I want to, to, to see the backstory. Maybe they can talk about it later mm. in a movie, but like, right, like, like the Raiders, when, when he meets. Marion, and there's a, some backstory in there, mm. although it's not intrusive, it's just there, you, you know, they, have some, they had something going on, he was a kind of a dick, because yeah, another thing that I've noticed as an adult is that Indiana Jones is no perfect hero, yeah. but that's for the best, that's for the best, because he's someone that we can identify with, yeah. he has fears, he's afraid of snakes, which is a really, really clever idea, especially for someone who's going to deal with so many frightening things. He's frightened of something that's mm. so, such a human thing to be frightened of. Snakes. Who's not afraid of snakes? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly afraid <laughs> of snakes. I definitely am. But you've, you've brought up some really, really good points here to start with. You've, you've, the first thing you mentioned was the fact that it's got a really clever introduction in terms of show and don't tell. And one of, the, one of the things that I've often heard said about Raiders, and I completely agree with, is that Lawrence Kasdan's script is so tightly put together that it is a masterclass in managing to keep the story moving while, like you say, talking about backstory, while telling us what we need to know about Indiana Jones, telling us about the character, telling us about the story. But at every point... You know exactly what he wants. You know exactly what he's trying to do. You know, you know the, the ABC of each scene. A lot of these modern blockbusters now, they get lost in their own you know, indulgence, really. And they'll, they'll do these scenes that have no use after time. Or they'll drag and you'll be sitting there thinking, well, when's it actually going to happen? From the very first moment of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it is story brilliantly mixed with character and actually introducing the world of Indiana Jones. And there, there are very few films. It's why Raiders isn't just a, a good popcorn movie. It's a genuinely great script and direction. Exactly. It, it, exactly. Does, it does both. And it's funny you say about backstory, because I think when, when inevitably somebody tries to remake Raiders, because it's, uh, it's going to happen. Oh, no. It, it will. Oh, no. It will. Or they, or they will at least reboot Indiana Jones when Harrison Ford either dies or gets too old which he's very close to doing now. He's only got really one more in him. And they will reboot the character. You can bet your backside on that. When they do that, you, you, I, will, I will also guarantee that the first, the first bit of... Well, in fact, the, they, they would probably do a whole movie based on the 10-minute introduction to The Last Crusade where you see young Indy and how he becomes yes. that. And, you know, they managed to do what a whole movie these days would spend two hours doing in 10 minutes of Last Crusade. And, and by giving him the hat and all that stuff. So you, you'll find that, that that backstory problem that you talk about will happen in the reboot eventually. And, you know, that's, that's the, the difference between how Hollywood films were made then and now. And why, like you say, Raiders is, is so, so wonderful. And that's why I think that a reboot would suck. Yeah, well, it, 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 would be, it, would, it wouldn't be as iconic or as, as interesting, definitely. I, I really don't think it would. The thing is that uh, with writers, as you say, 
there's only there's always something going on. You never stop just to explain something to the to the public, to the audience. You just keep things moving and moving and moving. And that's that's also the, my, my uh, second favorite thing about um, writers is that it's probably not as a technical reason as the other one. It's not about the script or the um, the brilliance of, of the of the, this interaction. It's something a little bit a little more silly, but it, the villains, the bad guys, mm. they're Nazi. I love movies with Nazis as villains. Yeah, definitely. Because, <laughs> because especially adventure movies, because they're basically you, you just see them and you know that you don't have to too many times these days you have to you have it's not a bad idea to have a um, well-developed and um, sympathetic villain a sympathetic big guy it can work in some movies but in an adventure it's something that you go in just to see the hero kill <laughs> these guys and basically snatching the prize before them before, because otherwise something bad is going to happen mm. You can't go wrong with Nazis because yeah. you just know, yeah, they're evil, they're Nazis. We know that. Perfect. I think what what Spielberg did in two of his films, and, and he, he inspired a lot of other movies like Hellboy, for instance, uh, in, in doing things like this, is that he he made Nazis funny, and and I mean that's that's the big thing. I mean, you know, we're, it's ironic that he then went on and made Schindler's List, where he actually depicted Nazis as they actually were. You know, pure. Most of them pure evil. With 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 Indiana Jones, they're funny. They're comical. It's like the um, tote, the guy, uh, the, the the Nazi villain in the black uh, coat who burns his hand on the amulet in in Tibet, and he's like, ah! he, yeah, he he's just pure, uh, pure like camp comedy all the way through. So it, it makes it impossible for you to to feel afraid of these guys because they're so. They're so genuinely scary in terms of the idea because they're real, because they actually existed, that in order for them to be good villains in Indiana Jones, he, he, he stripped away all the, all the horror and just made them pure pantomime. And that's, that's why they worked so well in two, in two Indiana Jones films, and especially in Raiders, because that's the best way to play Nazis, really, for comedy, you know, in, in a film yeah. like this, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because this is, a, this is an adventure movie. So, basically... Mm, what you have, when you have an adventure, think about the mm, classic idea of, of an adventure. Mm. Basically, you have the, mm, it's, it's almost like a fairy tale. Mm. You, so you have to defeat the dragon. And the, the dragon, I think that when you have something so lighthearted, something that's all about running about and fighting and basically ex bringing, bringing in the, the audience and make us spend a few hours with a likeable character, mm. you have to have some kind of comedy. You have to have some kind, the film must be, it can't be that dark. It can't be depressing because this is an adventure. This is something that you go to see just to, mm. to marvel at it, not to. Yeah. And, and this, is why, this is why you need some comedy. You need, you need some levity. And this is why Nazis, comedy Nazis, May may come come, come handy mm. and may help you a lot. What what do you think has made Raiders of the Lost Ark endure so much? I mean, obviously it's it's inspired you know hundreds of movies in the last thirty years. It's inspired a whole, it created a whole genre basically, or re revived the mm -hmm. whole genre from the thirties pulp serials and things like that. But what what makes it what makes it stand the test of time is probably the best example of this kind of movie. Well, it's, it's a combination of things. Mm, the script, as you said, very tight, mm. very well put together. The comedy in general, the levity, the comedy, because there's, there's a lot of mm, levity and comedy, especially in the fights, the fight scenes. I think that Register of the All Star is the best movie that you can enjoy, where, where, where there are fight scenes that you can enjoy just because of the. Mm, as, just because of, of the fight scene, not because of the special effects or the stunts. Well, just because you see, 
the bad guy going going against the good guy. Yeah, and there's there's the there's classic like production anecdotes with this, isn't there? Like, there's a classic moment where Harrison Ford was supposed to fight the guy with the swords in the market, and because, oh yeah, and because he they he was so fed up, he just pulls the gun and shoots him, and that wasn't in the script. They were supposed to have this big fight, and he pulls the gun, and immediately that's one of the most iconic moments in any of these Indiana Jones films because that just sums Indy up. It's like yeah, get out of the way. I'm, you know, I haven't got time for this. And that's the reluctant hero element of him. You know, it just, it, it's brilliant. It just, it works so well when they have those comic beats, you know, every, almost, exactly. I, I, every time. You're absolutely right. It is that comedy blended with the action that works. And probably Harrison Ford as well, because he's so deadpan with it and he's so, you know, laconic that it's, it's, it's brilliant, really. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I think that in Indiana Jones... Along with um, along with uh, John McClane, he has inspired a new kind of action hero. Mm. Because when you think about that, think about how action heroes were portrayed before these movies. They were just very, 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 mm, very, very emotionless, very completely good, completely pure-hearted. Or even if they were bad or uncompromising, they were just very. I don't know. There wasn't the element of comedy, of self, self comedy, especially self comedy. Because when you think about that, the iconic scene about when he just throws in this guy, it's all about comedy. And also, it's, it's about comedy. And it's also about what Indy is as a person. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't play fair. No, it doesn't believe in fair play, no. but it's right. Because there's no need to play fair against a giant who's where, who's basically swinging his giant sword at you. You just shoot him. And, and, and also, yeah. there's there's the sorry, but there's also the the interesting parallel which which they do mention in this between Indy and Belloc, the villain, because they're, they're exactly. both, they are both flip sides of the same coin. Belloc is an archaeologist, and he is what Indy could have been had. You know, he'd gone down a different road, and he he, he didn't. Indy, like you say, he doesn't play fair, and he's you know, but he does have he does have a sense of right and wrong, and he does have morals, and he ultimately, when he always says, you know, this belongs in a museum, and you know, it's like he he wants to preserve these things as opposed to using them for evil. Whereas obviously, Belloc is is you know, his alter ego almost, um, and that is something that people forget about this film. Actually, I think they forget that that there's that under layer there between them, you know. Which is really interesting, and it, 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 exactly what you what you're talking about, really. Yeah, the great thing about mm, Belloc is that, as you said, uh, Belloc is the evil counterpart to Indy. He's very similar, actually. He, he's the most dangerous villain because of that. Mm. Because if you think about that, uh, the all the Nazi, all the Nazi guys, they're not really effective, aren't they? Mm. No, no. You need someone who knows how, how Indy thinks. And Belloc knows that. There's this, this really iconic scene when uh, Indy is uh, trying to shoot on the bad guys. And Belloc says, he says that he won't shoot them because it could, dam- uh, could damage the arc. Yeah, it's the moment with the rocket yeah. launcher, isn't it? It's the rocket launcher on the with, cliff. And he with the rocket launcher, launcher. With the rocket yeah. launcher. Yeah, yeah. And and, he, and he's right because then he, he he surrenders when he could have destroyed them all. He surrenders because he knows that he can't destroy that ancient treasure. You know he can't, and that's that side of him really that he's similar to Belloc. You know you, you're completely exactly. right. Yeah, and this is why it's so clever. This is why the, the script is actually really clever because it does have all this. But you know it's got all the, the showmanship and the Hollywood, but it is it does have a genuine character art for India, a genuine story and. You know, and these really well-realized characters inside it. And, and I think, I think this this is why Indiana Jones has become such an iconic character. Mm. It's everything about him is fun. You have the hat, you have the whip, you have everything. But most more um, it, it, it's not not all about style. It's also about, as you said, his character arc, which is. A really damn good one. Mm. Too many things nowadays. Too many f- movies nowadays. Just they just rely on you know. They they don't know what the the main character is after. Mm. Mm. You you see people fighting, but why? 
you sometimes you don't really know why. And this sometimes you don't care, which is probably the death sentence for the movie when people don't care about the movie. Mm. With intentions, you know exactly what, what is after. And you know yeah. it's not gonna blow up the arc. Mm. You know he's not is he has morals, but he's also not going to be stopped mm. by the type thing. You know is you know everything about him without anyone telling me you oh he's like that because this thing happened because oh he's passionate about his work because this or that. No, 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 you don't need to know yeah. the reasons yeah. why. But you need to know the goal. You need to know what he wants. Yeah. Because otherwise it's really hard to care when you see people just fighting each other for little to no reason. And and that and that's the point. You do care. And and you know you care about Indy, you care about his relationship with Marion, which is one of the best dynamics in in film, I think. You know, you, you care you care about the quest he's on. You care when he gets the shit beaten out of him at regular intervals, which is one of the great things about all the Indiana Jones films, you know, even Crystal Skull in, in sometimes, in that they really Indy really gets the crap beaten out of him quite often. And and you know, he he, he he somehow manages to plug on and keep going and you're there with him. You know, when he's hanging off the, the front of that truck as the Nazis are trying to basically run him down and he just won't give up and he keeps going. And it's that kind of you know, doggedness about him, and you, you know, you are you you really care, and he's massively likable, even though he's a rogue. And it's it's just all of that put together, coupled with you know a, a fantastic actor in the role, you know, and just yeah. a, a great cast in general. You know, Paul Freeman, Allen, Karen Allen, John Reese Davis. It's just it's just got it all really, and so it combines to be this just this unique package, doesn't it? It's just it's just. Perfect, really. It really is just this yeah. perfect little package. Also, something that's really extremely good about this movie is the soundtrack. Yes, yes. The Indiana Jones teams is just brilliant. Stunning. The moment when, uh, that we're talking about, the, when he when he's on the, the when he's on the, the tank, and he, there's the soundtrack tells you everything about that scene because. As he starts to climb, it's all read, and you feel like you're literally saying, Come on, Indy, come on, yeah, climb, climb. And it, the music just matches the scenes perfectly. That's there, the, the soundtrack of this, this movie is just amazing. It's one of the things that made the movie so good, in my opinion, yeah, other than that. It's true. Yeah, which is extremely good. The script, yeah. the story, but the music, you can't forget the music. No, it is, it is an incredible soundtrack, and it's John Williams at his best, potentially, and that, that's saying something. It's, it all comes together. I think, to finish then, to finish, to conclude, what's the one, if, if there is somebody out there who's been living under a rock on Mars and hasn't <laughs> seen Raiders of the Lost Ark... <laughs> What is the one piece of advice you'd give to them to watch it after everything we've talked about? Why, finally, should should they watch this film? Because when you re- when you're really depressed, when you really feel down, this movie will cheer you up. It will cheer you up because it's the ultimate adventure. You will go into this movie, and at the end, you feel just you feel just punching the air and saying, "Yes, this was just what I needed." This was just the perfect adventure from start to finish. You, there's never a dull moment. So it's basically the most enjoyable movie experience ever, at least in my opinion. There, might, there may be some great movies, some brilliant movies, some, some movies that are classic or they will last for centuries. Some, there will be, there will be some movies that are maybe better put together, I don't know. But this one is just the most enjoyable one. You're right. You just have a load of fun. I, I mean, when you, when you watch it, I always have loads of fun watching it. So if you want to have fun, watch this movie. And, and uh, exactly, and that's why I've got the Indiana Jones theme on the background now <laughs> as you're talking. 
and it's, that sums it up. It's just wonderful fun, and there is very little like it out there. So, all I can say is, massive thank you, Mr. Corvero, for coming on and talking about Indy. And, uh, You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. And in the words of Indy, it's not the years, honey, it's millions. <laughs> Okay, welcome back everybody. It's time now for, I'm going to channel Harry Hill's TV burp here. Controversial Biblical Movie of the Week. <laughs> yes, it's Noah time. Noah. What did he say? He's going to destroy the world. My father said that one day, if man continued in his way, he's... The creator would annihilate this world. Can I not be averted? He speaks to you. You must trust that he speaks in a way that you can understand. I saw water. Death by water. That's on your life. A great flood is coming. We build a vessel to survive the storm. We build an ark. Noah, then, which is the latest film by Darren Aronofsky, the auteur behind such films as Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Black Swan, and he is undeniably an incredibly talented guy. I don't love all of his films, but I respect him critically as a director, and even if I may not be in love with some of his movies, I think he's incredibly talented. And the the story of Noah is something that he's wanted to tell, as it turns out, since he was in something like third grade, you know, since he was very, very little. And he's been developing the script for Noah and this movie on the back burner while he was making things like The Fountain and Black Swan. And it's taken him near enough a decade to bring it to the screen. So it's quite a mammoth, you know, achievement in terms of the fact that he's been fully determined to make the biblical story of Noah come to life. And he does that very very well in terms of a visual aesthetic however <laughs> to say that Noah is a very mixed bag is putting it mildly <laughs> because it is possibly the most bonkers biblical movie that I have ever seen that has perhaps ever been made you know if you think the Ten Commandments was a bit mad it's got nothing on Noah and the reasons for that are kind of in depth. The important thing to remember with Noah, and this, and this is why the religious people who've been getting their knickers in a twist are so stupid, it is unreal. The story of Noah is myth. It's an allegory. And one of the things that Aronofsky has said very clearly is that it is not meant to be a historical movie. <laughs> in the sense that when people have made things like the Ten Commandments, it, it, it is perhaps believed by more people as being an element of fact. Whereas Noah obviously takes place thousands and thousands and thousands of years before the story of Jesus. And, and it, it's the very start of the Old Testament. It's just after Genesis. So it is, it's going so far back into myth and allegory and, and storytelling that for any, if anyone does genuinely believe that Noah is was fact, then you are as crazy as some of the stuff in this film. So, to say that it should be punching at a certain historical level is wrong. I didn't really know what to expect from Noah, but what I got wasn't what I expected, <laughs> if you see what I mean. I think, I think the crucial thing was, with Russell Crowe in the lead role, I kind of expected a bit more of a gladiator-style film, in the sense that I thought it would be biblical myth, gr gritty and down you know, on a character level, more than it was. It was that to a point, but Aronofsky really doesn't hold any aspersions of it being fantasy. I mean, this this is this is a fantasy movie. You know, within five or ten minutes of the film opening, there is there is a character in it who basically is a cross between Treebeard from 
uh, Lord of the Rings The Two Towers and Optimus Prime from Transformers. <laughs> it, you know, it, it is immediately fantastical. It is, it is science fiction. Ironically, it, even though it's set in the very distant past, in the time before time, in pretty much antiquity, the t- before civilization properly began, it could effectively be some kind of very futuristic, thr- you know, uh, sci-fi epic. It could be. It could, it could be something that's happened after every bit of civilization has been wiped clean from the earth. It's therefore a, a very, very strange film, and it doesn't really give you what you think you're going to get. You know, obviously the story of Noah is well known. You know, Noah is given a vision by God to build an ark to protect all the animals of, you know, the animals who go in two by two. Uh, of, uh, to protect the species because he's going to wipe the earth clean with a flood because man has sinned, and ever since man took, you know, ever since Adam took a bite of the apple um, in the Garden of Eden, and it, he and Eve were corrupted by sin, man has subsequently, through the story of Cain and Abel, Cain slewing Abel, and all these generations that actually turn out to be ancestors of Noah himself, they've all increasingly sinned. And there's one scene at the very beginning. There's this kind of, and as I think it was Mark Kermode who put it as a. a almost Star Wars opening crawl of in the beginning there was nothing and then we see the story of, of the, the Nephilim you know falling to earth the fallen angels and all this that start to help build what we know as, as the first civilization and then man's inhumanity corrupts the planet and you literally see the earth from a distance turning black almost because man's sin has overrun everything and that means that God is ready to go right you've had your turn You've messed it up. It's time to start again. And Noah obviously is charged with the one who is going to build the ark to rescue the, the, the animals and start civilization again. Interestingly enough, though, the, the word God is never used. He is the creator, which is a far more blanket covering term for the almighty. And that that's quite intentional because it's very, very clear right from the beginning that Darren Aronofsky, and he said he is, but Darren Aronofsky is a confirmed atheist. He does not believe in God. And that is extremely important to this film because only something as bonkers as Noah could have been made by an atheist. Interestingly enough, I went to see it with my girlfriend. She's a physics teacher. She's got a doctorate in science. And she immediately noticed that in, in, a, in a, a sequence where we see the formation of the earth and, 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 and the story of creation, that Aronofsky has very deliberately put in a theory about planetary bodies coming together and colliding. And, it, and it's a very clear scientific theory. And he also manages to sneak in the theory of evolution with you know man evolving. And it's, it's something that she pointed out to me and said, well, hang on a minute, that, that's, that's not a religious story. That is... That is <laughs> That is an atheist, scientific, rational evolution view of the creation of the earth and the creation of man inside Noah, even telling the story of creation. So it's very clear that Aronofsky is very intentionally not decided decided not to say God, because if you say God, you open up a very big can of worms, because then immediately you're suggesting that there is only one God, and that is the Christian God. You know, there's no room for the pagan interpretation, there's no room for the Muslim interpretation, Islam, none of this. And then you open up a big can of worms. And Noah was always going to open up a can of worms anyway, because it touches on these things, which is the touchiest subject in the world ever. So the fact he does that, does that is important because the creator is more of a blanket term. And it's, it's about man's relationship with the creator and Noah's relationship with the creator. And Aronofsky has wrapped this big blockbuster around it. And it is the first blockbuster he's ever done. And, you know... On a visual side, on a visual sense, Noah is, is very good. You know, it, it, it looks the part. It's got some, it's got some powerful action moments. The, the flood itself, the, the great deluge that God's, the, the Creator sends down, is very impressive. You know, it look, it, it's this long protracted sequence as the ark is built, uh, and once the ark is built, when when it all comes down. And at the same time, you've got um, Ray Winston playing a human descendant of Cain, who is a uh, it's like a human king who basically wants to take the art for himself and he's he's a typical Ray Winston gruff guy and he uh, and he's, he's, he's the baddie essentially of the whole piece you've got them fighting as the, as the world's going to shit and all the water's colliding and it, it's great it's very entertaining in that sense but it's the problem with Noah the, 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 the problem with Noah is that it's it, it's poorly written in places surprisingly poorly written considering Aronofsky and uh, his writer Ari Handel have written things like Black Swan before it's surprisingly poorly written it's it's very hammy, it's very schlocky. It's got a cast working with some 
diabolical lines, especially Anthony Hopkins. I mean, he, he's basically wheeled on as Matthew Seller, who's uh, Noah's grandfather. He, he's like he's like uh, Obi Wan Kenobi with long grey hair, you know, spouting uh, really daft lines, and he's he just a typical Anthony Hopkins being wheeled on as an old wizened old man to be Anthony Hopkins in a Welsh accent, you know, and it's it's the kind of thing he's done before in Alexander and other things. And you know you you, you can't you know you can't fault Anthony Hopkins in a way because he's Anthony Hopkins, but you think he he's any, if anything's better than this. But then you know you've got a cast wrestling with some really schlocky hammy dialogue, and it's very overwrought, it's very melodramatic in places, and it's unfortunately unintentionally funny. There were several points where me and my girlfriend, and indeed people around the the packed the packed cinema we were in, were laughing at points they shouldn't have been laughing. Brilliantly behind us, there was this. There was this family of, uh, I think it was a black family, and they were doing that wonderful kind of <laughs> black laugh. So it was brilliant. Uh, uh, they, they kept me entertained at the point where I was seriously thinking this film is completely bonkers. And it proves it's bonkers, not just because of the, the Nephilim rock monster things that they are, you know, and the whole thing of Ray Winston coming on and saying some things like, I am a man, I am going to eat meat, you know, and all this stuff. It, it's not just that. It's the fact that, without giving too much away, the final act basically makes you realise that Noah, obviously played quite well by Russell Crowe, even though I don't necessarily think he's perfect fit for the part, he becomes not all the way through. He's very intense and he's very pier- he's very pierced and he's he, you know he's, he's focused on what he's doing. But in the end, the final act, he goes absolutely mental, he, he, and he does things and he pre- he prepares to do things that really turn him into an, a complete zealot. And I've got to be honest, that was my favourite thing in the film. Because you would think that Russell Crowe, because he's Russell Crowe and he's played Maximus Decimus Meridius and all this stuff, you would think he's playing Noah as this very noble, worshipping man who does, goes on this crusade to save humanity. Yet, in fact, he's playing Noah as a complete nutcase. And it is really entertaining as Noah becomes increasingly more consumed by this path he's on, you know, not even people like Jennifer Connelly, who sadly looks lovely, and sadly she's wasted, except for one really great scene, which she completely nails. And then you've got, you know, Emma Watson as, as the, you know, effectively like the Virgin Mary, almost, in a way, to an extent, of the story. And they're all basically suffering for, for his, his crusade. And it, it really, really goes into some massively dark territory. Really does. Which I don't think Aronofsky ultimately has the balls to properly pull the trigger and doesn't follow through with the conviction I I wouldn't have liked because if he had done what he was what he what he was going to do it would have been horrendous and horrible but in a way it would have been far more powerful but you know it's it it really tips it over the edge potentially at the end and I finished watching the film thinking that I thought it was visually arresting very striking it looked great it was well filmed well directed in many places and I was really impressed by the scope of the whole thing you know how epic it was and how many how many huge huge themes about life it was touching upon but but I was I, I hadn't fully enjoyed it and, and I, I came out and I was, I was discussing it with my girlfriend and I was saying how I genuinely think Noah might be a film that gets better the more you watch it and the more you take it in and the more you you see it for what it is it's never going to be able to escape the fact that the script is poor the performances are handy it's very melodramatic it's very daft it's incredibly bonkers it's silly as hell in many places, you know, it's just got some really bizarre moments in it and moments that completely don't work in a way that Aronofsky normally makes them work. Even though one of the, one of the reasons he's not my favourite my favorite filmmaker is that he can be incredibly po-faced, as was proven by The Fountain, which was so far up its own arse, it's a wonder he could see the end. And he, he, he unfortunately doesn't really know how to pitch any kind of grounded humour and his characterisation is they're more like ciphers and not concepts and ideas than people which means that the whole thing doesn't quite work but I think it was it's a very brave experiment and it's it's uh, it's a very say what you like about it it's very entertaining it's very entertaining I was never bored I just wasn't fully engaged and I didn't fall in love with it and I didn't feel like I was fully enjoying it in the moment but it's something you need to go and see because regardless it's a very, very, very different take on a story that you thought you know, but you may not fully know. So go and experience it.
Sadly, that brings us to the end of another Black Hole Cinema. Hopefully you've enjoyed the two movie reviews. Noah and The Quiet Ones, fairly mixed bags, both of them this week. Uh, I would recommend Noah over The Quiet Ones, in incidentally, if you have to choose between them. Noah has a lot more interesting elements to it. The Quiet Ones is fairly you know, middling, but there are better films out there right now for you to watch either way, so you know, the choice is yours. I'm going to make sure that I make the most of this next week, watching some a lot of new films in the cinema. I've got a plan to see quite a, new, a few of the new releases uh, over the coming week, which I'm quite excited about. And I'll, of course, be watching plenty of my own movies that I've got taped and recorded ready to digest, so you'll probably get an update on that next week. And I'm just going to enjoy and relax and make the most of this lovely little downtime I've got. So, as ever... If you want to comment on the show or tell me some what you liked, what you didn't, some improvements, you can find me on Twitter, Tony underscore O underscore Black. And I may actually, I mean, looking into the possibility of, of starting my own Black Hole Cinema dedicated Twitter. Um, we'll see about that. It's um, something I'm, I'm, I'm toying with right now. So that may crop up very soon. But for now, you can contact me on my own personal Facebook account. And so that's it for another week. Enjoy your film watching as we head into Easter. And incidentally, have a, have a really great Easter break if that's what you're celebrating uh, on Good Friday. And I'll be back for another good episode, hopefully, very soon. Take care, guys.